Hey guys, welcome back to Who's On Worst, your favorite, if not maybe the only bad movie podcast available uh, wherever you subscribe to podcasts uh, and part of the D-Rays Bay Podcast Network. I am your host, Ashley McLennan. With me, as always, is my co-host, Darby Robinson. And of course, we could not do this ever because we are not talented enough without brett rutherford uh so that is us and um wow guys for us it's been a while since we've recorded i know for you guys there was an episode just recently and that's just the beauty of technology and the internet um we actually watched two movies since the last time you have heard from us and we were considering doing the strangest double feature about bad fathers in the history of cinema uh and giving you both the fan and angels in the outfield today but instead you will just get the fan Uh, And with a little bit more information on a movie whose date I could not even tell you uh, and information about its making I do not care about uh, is Darby. What a a setup. Uh, So The the Fan um, was 1996 mystery thriller by uh, kind of a wild and and fascinating uh, filmmaker, Tony Scott, brother of Ridley Scott. But Tony Scott has his own pretty fantastic uh, legacy of just he really went for every film so did um, tony scott do domino like the kira knightley he did yeah, yeah. i liked that one that one's actually pretty you can kind of tell with every tony scott film i feel like domino is almost his most perfect tony mm-hmm. scott film because every film is like getting like more and more like domino he like keeps trying like dutch angles and 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 weird um like like vis- visual effects and music kind of like a and hyper saturated gritty yes vibe is very much the tony scott tony scott uh i i, I kind of love his films because he um I, I think his brother gets more like obviously like theat like oscar um you know kind of uh love and uh and unfortunately tony scott is it has passed away so back in 2012 so rest in peace to Tony Scott, but always made just really interesting movies. And I actually do think this movie is really interesting. It's definitely not going to be the ones that like he is remembered for as a director. Uh, You know, it's not as good as say like Enemy of the State or True Romance or The Last Boy Scout. And it's certainly not Top Gun, which is his by far his most successful film. But I don't think this movie would be as good without Tony Scott. So let me set the stage. 1996, this is actually Tony Scott kind of at his height of his powers. He can make anything. After Top Gun, he can make anything. Um, And this is a film that he chose to do. Uh, The synopsis from Rotten Tomatoes. A troubled salesman who peddles knives, Gil Renard, played by Robert De Niro, has a volatile personality, which has resulted in divorce and a strained relationship with his young son. The one thing that Renard cares passionately about is baseball, particularly the San Francisco Giants and the team's newest recruit, Bobby Rayburn, played by Wesley Snipes. As Renard's personal life continues to crumble, he begins obsessively tracking Rayburn, leading to kidnapping and even murder. Oh, they really just gave the plot away there. They, they really, yeah, they, well. they, it's like a long synopsis right there. But, uh, um, but yeah. I mean, who could have not figured out what the plot was like five minutes into the movie? It's like, okay, we all know where this is going. 
Oh, I mean, that's the setup, right? Like you get the first scene is, you know, Robert De Niro in his disturbing van uh, driving hectically through the streets of San Francisco while on talk radio with uh, Jewel, played by uh, Ellen Barkin at the absolute height of Ellen Barkin being super hot. Um, she, she looks amazing. Not to disagree, <laughs> but the height of Ellen Barkin being super hot is every day. I like right now is also the height. The height has not ended. It's like a long, it's a long peak. It's like also a plateau, but it's a, all a permanent it's Everest. peak yeah. of Ellen Barkin hotness. But like she's like peak, like super mid nineties. Just like mm -hmm. I mean, obviously they lay it on thick that she's like one of the dudes, right? Like she's smoking on air when she's with her co-host and ordering whiskey at the bar. Like. Yeah, stepping all over the men. She's what is she like a? They call her a ball buster for sure up in the, mm -hmm. you know, so it's like they're really painting her as like one of the dudes, but like, so that's, she's accepted and they take her seriously. Um, but I mean, I think she's actually a, a pretty decent character, all things considered, since she is literally the only female character in this movie. Um, so I guess good, good job on, on that team. Um, but so he, so De Niro's calling into this radio station hosted by Jewel, who, who is the Ellen Barkin character. And they're kind of talking smack about Bobby Rayburn and whether or not he's worth, and God, this is so 90s, whether or not he's worth $40 million. $40 million. They could not harp more on the $40 million contract yeah. that Bobby Rayburn got. And absolutely at no point do they tell you how many years that $40 million contract is worth. So perhaps it is a one-year $40 million deal, in which case I would be astonished in $1996. Um, I can't imagine in 1996 anyone getting a $40 million contract for a single year while still at the height. What was he? Um, five years in a row RBI champion uh, at that point, just, just leaving behind the, uh, the Braves. Um, yes. so, uh, no, I can't fathom that was a one-year deal. Um, well, so but I looked it up. I, cause I was so curious cause they really are like, it's like the major, like sort of like the major thing that's like attention yeah. is, uh, with the fans is will the giants accept that they signed this guy for $40 million and, uh, Ellen Barkin, Jewel, the character of Jewel, uh, is kind of busting his chops about the fact that like is he really worth 40 million so i looked up like what who is the highest paid player in like 1996. uh so 1996 the highest paid player was cecil fielder of the uh detroit tigers and he was making this is just for one year i don't know his full salary but it was nine million two hundred and thirty seven thousand dollars so if you like i imagine and this is just me uh picturing that that was like a three to four year deal yeah. so like totally reasonable like 10 million a year he's an rbi champ back in the days when rbi champs were like something well, like that people three, would pay for 315 average the season before like we're not it's a guy that's worth some money he's a good player he's yeah. a good player yeah he's playing center field valuable position uh yeah so honestly i have to say i'm going to disagree with jewel i feel like 40 million from what we've been given i think bobby rayburn is worth 40 million yeah i mean based on all the stats that they kind of roll out to you absolutely i feel like 10 mil a season for a guy like that uh definitely not overpaying 
Um, I, it is 1996, so it is an even year, and this was before even year magic in San Francisco, but um, perhaps could have brought the beginning of it. Um, but yeah, I think I have a note in here that just said lol, $40 million. I have that. I had this, the, my first note was like, $40 million, a lot for the 90s? My first notes in this, I think, were very valuable because we're already past them. But my first one was, oh no, sympathy for the devil. Uh, and that was three seconds into the movie that we're already listening to cliched uh Rolling Stone songs, which becomes a theme throughout this movie, as does Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, uh, it's Rolling Stones and Nine Inch Nails. Like those were the two things that Tony Scott was super into. All caps. I just have a note that says Jack Black, um, because Jack Black is the audio technician on Jules' radio show and has a whopping two lines in this movie. Mm-hmm. And one of them, one of them is "We got him." Um, and so, a delightful experience of Ken. Tony Scott. I think it does deserve credit for giving us Jack Black because he's also in Enemy of the State, which he does about a year or two after this, which is a really good movie. Was he like the like? conspiracy theory dude or something in that i feel like i haven't seen enemy this he is part of the nsa like uh spying team okay and uh yeah he's just like one of this like side like kind of tech tech nerds but like he this was in a period where this is far before jack black becomes jack black becomes you know the tenacious d and school of rock and kung fu panda and so yeah like tony scott like saw something in him to give him like completely nothing roles they're just like a guy like the nerd but he still was like, I like this guy, put him in. And so, yeah, Tony Scott, uh, credit to, uh, you know, giving us Jack Black, a years of comedy glory. So pretty early on in this movie, we get two very key plot points uh, that emerge. One, of course, is that uh, Bobby Rayburn uh, has a lucky magic number of 11. Uh, which he somehow did absolutely zero research into before moving to this new team and had no idea that the player who plays his exact same position also wears that number because he shows up on the day of his first game to his locker to discover that the number 33 is hanging there. And he's like, no, 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 we're going to fix this. And like the clubhouse guy walks away like it's going to be fixable as if the clubby wouldn't already know that Primo was wearing the number 11. You have the previous center fielder who's been with the Giants for multiple years, is apparently a fan favorite, Juan Primo, played by a young Benicio Del Toro. Um, this cat, by, The cast in this movie is incredible, yeah. and every single person does a great job. Yeah. Like, every individual person, I will say, this is perfectly cast and perfectly acted by everybody there's it's over the top but that's what they were that's the direction they were given and they nailed it um but Benicio Del Toro fantastic um Juan Primo success like he is clearly the like you know former clubhouse like kind of lead guy and fans love him he's got the number 11 obviously but it just kills me that like I'm sorry if you're going to a new team and you're that married to your number you would mm-hmm. find that out ahead of time. Like we've seen this a million times. Seasoned vets move to a new club and somebody else has their number and they'll like agree to donate to their favorite charity or, you know, mm-hmm. they'll come to terms with it. And, or like there'll be some discussion about, you know, trading that number that happens well before a player comes on board for their first Well before game. opening day. Well before. Well before minutes before opening day. <laughs> yeah. And then I think the other very important tidbit of information that we get before things really get rolling in this movie is that Robert De Niro's character, Gil, has 
quite possibly the most on-the-nose job I could possibly imagine for a movie about a guy who ultimately goes psycho and kills someone. And he is a knife salesman. He is the son of a knife developer who is now not like a door-to-door, but like a store-to-store knife salesman in San Francisco. Who shaves his own body hair while demonstrating the knives on people's floors. Yeah, on their desks. Like, it's a move. I think I figured Um, out why he's not succeeding as a salesman. I'll be honest, though. I'm not a a sporting goods store or wherever he was going around to, to sell them. So I don't know what the uh, techniques of the knife salesman are in terms of demonstration. So maybe they got it perfectly uh, right. I just haven't dealt with any knife salesman lately. Yeah, I don't know. I, there's They really do set Gil up from the get-go as just being a little bit unhinged. Like, he's never sympathetic. There's never a point in Gil, like, he's a bit too much on the radio initially. And then he's a bit too much in sales situations and then, oh my God! I mean, is it too early for us to get into his relationship with his son? No, because it's it's only really one major scene, but it's it's, bad. it's a it's massive. So the entire time that Gil is on screen, and this is where Robert De Niro is like he's done this role so many times. Yeah, like you know Max Cady and uh, and Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver are the two kind of most like iconic versions of this role that he's done, which is a deranged white rage character. Uh, but this is right up. There. I mean, like he does a fantastic, he is unsettling and disturbing a hundred percent of the time he's on screen. I am like, I am, I am not well. And it really is like almost, it doesn't peak there because he gets a lot worse, but like the scene where he takes his son to opening day is just uncomfortable from start to finish because it starts off with him picking it up picking up his son at his ex-wife's house and she is like very disturbed to see him and does not want him to take his son which is like a i thought a good choice well she's she's already mad because he's late and she's like adamant from the get-go that she doesn't want this to happen Mm-hmm. And he's clearly got this like confrontational relationship with her new husband and who does nothing to help in these situations. No. <laughs> no. And yes. I think immediately you get to this point where it's very clear that like the guiding principles De Niro has as a father are very much rooted in his son's understanding of baseball. Like it's the only thing I think he recognizes an ability to hand down to his kid is baseball and knives. I'm not even kidding. And so there's a scene in the van where he's trying to like get his kid into some Rolling Stones and he's, he's going through this whole spiel and he sees that his son has a new baseball glove and the glove is from Tim or Tom or whatever the guy, the new guy. Bill is every stepdad's name, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so he like, he sees the new glove and kid says, you know, it's a gift from Bill. I'm pretty sure it's Tim, but I like Bill better. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he's like, it's a gift from him. And the De Niro just kind of like gets real like awkward about it. And he gets a piece of shit. And like, he's like really like, and so here's my, uh, here's the other thing about this scene is that just prior to this, you've had a scene where De Niro has gone to a sales office of some higher up company where he's hoping to make a big sale and save his career. Cause he's on the line. He's going to get fired if he doesn't make some big sales. And it's also been evidently proven that he is late 
for everything. He is constantly late to everything. And he shows up 11 minutes late for this meeting and the guy's already gone. So they reschedule, but they reschedule for opening day. And so Robert De Niro, apparently a guy who has lived most of his adult life in this film in the city of San Francisco, seems to believe that he can drive from Candlestick Park to wherever in San Francisco this office is, downtown, in a giant van in the middle of opening day stadium traffic in, I think he had half an hour to get there by the time that that home run ball got hit. Um, That is like somebody telling me that they can drive anywhere in New York City in rush hour traffic in like 20 minutes or getting anywhere in LA in the span of an hour. Like it's, it's comical fiction. I thought that like the whole setup, cause he's like, like saying, telling his son, like, you know, stay right here. I have to go down and like, you know, do a thing. Right. I was like, oh, he's going to try to get a, he's going to make a call yeah from the stadium yeah. like i was like there's no way that that's the that doesn't even make any like well, sense at all he didn't have to leave the stadium for you to have that that scene like like darby said like he could go to make a call and the kid gets yeah. lost and you like yeah. everything's still yeah it's like because he does he leaves the it seems like that's in the middle innings when he leaves and he's yes. back before the end of the game <laughs> and the th- the part of me that it kills me because this guy is a diehard baseball fan like that's the phrase that's used diehard mm-hmm. giants fan and he's at opening day checking his watch and i'm like good sir how many games have you attended that are under three hours in length that is the window like give yourself and there's like hullabaloo ahead of opening day usually like there's stuff and like i'm sorry i made a note of this because it's so crazy okay so the the meeting was set for 2 30 p.m opening day on the east or on the west coast is 1 p.m yeah right like or not opening day but like a day game is like 1 p.m traditionally you know, you can sometimes get like early, early, like 10 a.m. But like, usually it's like 1, 1 p.m. Because you're, because yeah. the earlier games are going to go on TV. So like your New York's might be like a little bit earlier. Whatever. Well, and it's, it's clearly like, it's so far, it's far enough away that like the ex-wife is like home by six. Like we're talking, there's right. enough traffic that like a game that's going to last until 4.30 mm-hmm. is like, she's giving him an hour and a half window to get yeah. home. Like, totally reasonable. Totally reasonable. You wouldn't say necessarily home by six if it was like a 10 a.m. game, right? So he's trying to, he is planning going into this that a game, an opening day game that's starting at 1 p.m., he's going to be able to get to a meeting that's an hour and a half later and get back. Like, I, what it's okay, it's terrible. It's really, really bad. Um, but it is kind of showcasing that he is a uh, terrible father. He's a terrible father and kind of a lunatic. But yeah, it's it, like that is definitely a crazy thing to say, like to think, to even plan that out. And I it mean, obviously they, doesn't work because he gets they, there and the guy is not there is that the because game? he went to the game. 
Yeah. Which I, I, he's late anyway, but I get, that killed me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think there was a lot about that scene that set a lot of tension up, really. Like, mm-hmm. first, there's the tension of the will or won't they? The old lady in the Stanford hat just kind of watching the whole thing unfold. Like, what is this guy doing? Um, and him, like, screaming at her for noticing and getting into fights with the guys around him. And, like, just being a generally belligerent schmuck. And like, and the scene where he like steps on his son's foot to try and catch a ball. And then he's like, we almost got it. We'll get another one. But the one thing I kind of want to point out about this scene in terms of tension, because there's a lot of buildup to like how unhinged De Niro is and how could anybody do this to their kid and like all of that nonsense is that the entire time they're at this game, his son is playing with a knife, just like playing like flip open knife that his dad gave him his dad's like oh i thought your mom confiscated that and he's like i got it back and he's like so proud of his son for stealing back this legitimate real pocket like it's not a pocket knife it's a it's a knife and he is opening and closing this knife the entire time and i'm sorry as far as like chekhov's weapons go um something should have happened with that kid and that knife yeah, I was actually kind of expecting that. And nothing ever happens with that knife. Like, he like, doesn't I'm take the knife later. No, I have a note. I'm like, this kid having a knife is absolutely going to end poorly. Because yeah. they emphasize him opening and closing that knife so frequently and with, like, such emphasis on it. And, like, it's nothing. It's just, like, another, like, tick in the, the, the tension build. Like, yeah. I also had a note at this point of the movie that just says Dutch angles the movie mm-hmm. um, because wow, did Tony Scott love him some Dutch angles. Why have a, why have a shot level when you can crack cricket to like 45 degrees in every angle? Well, Kenneth Branagh <laughs> took notes and applied them to the first <laughs> he did. Thor movie. I'm pretty so. sure that first Thor movie, he was like, I'm channeling Tony Scott in the fan. Yeah, and... that entire movie is a Dutch angle. Like for anybody who doesn't know, like if you're not a giant dork, um, as we all are on this podcast, Dutch angles are kind of like that low shot from like a, a low angle and kind of tilted. Like, so anything that kind of gives you the sense that you're laying half on your side drunkenly on the floor and looking <laughs> up at somebody as the action happens is typically a Dutch angle. Uh, and Tony Scott loves them. He, he loved them in this movie. Yeah, he, he used it a bunch. Um, so one of the things that comes up early on is clearly the number 11 and this is like a huge plot point for the first like half until where it like really gets where where it gets real Mm -hmm. um is the number 11 which which Juan Primo has Bobby Rayburn that's his number it clearly means a lot to him he has a he has a necklace with with 11 on it and uh so he, he goes to Primo and asks him about this like after opening day um to 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 get his number and primo says 500k right which is a little high but not that unreasonable you're making 40 million dollars bobby rayburn just pay the man that's what i was like all right no 500k seems fine and but that's like a thing he's like no i'm not gonna do that and so he wears he pulls a michael jordan and he wears his old uniform underneath his new uniform right um, but this number 11 becomes a huge, huge thing because later on in the film, skipping ahead, uh, as Gil becomes even more unhinged, and I really want to sort of say that like this film does a good job that it starts with him, a deeply unsettling character that is clearly not like fit for society and needs serious help. 
He needs professional help because he is a dangerous person. Yeah. And it never lets up. So it's not like he is like a normal guy that has a series of bad things. Yeah, he's not Michael Douglas and falling down. There's not like a no. snap moment. He's just off his rocker he from the He is snapped and then it gets worse. And it yeah. does a pretty good job of the idea of like a stalker relationship where he is interpreting responses that are not real. Like he is listening to Bobby Rayburn yeah. say something and he is thinking he is talking to him. And I thought it does a pretty good job of that. That is like what you hear a lot of from... Apparently, Robert De Niro was fairly method in this, and Cal Ripken Jr. was the hitting instructor for, the, oh, or the no. baseball instructor for the film. And Cal Ripken Jr. has a story in, in the trivia about basically where he's like had to leave because he had a he had like a one on one meeting with Robert De Niro, and he was so freaked out because Robert De Niro is just Gil Renard, and and Cal is like, I'm getting away from this person. I know this is Robert De Niro, Oscar winning actor. He is. Yeah still playing with a knife in front of me and I am going to get away from this, which good choice. Good choice, Cal. That's Hall of Fame instincts. That's Hall of Fame instincts from the Iron Man. Um, Yikes. But yeah, so so Gil Renard is crazy from the start. He's very deranged. He is barely hanging on to, to society. And obviously things get taken away and he gets, gets a lot worse. The number though becomes this big thing, right? He is uh, enraged because he loved Bobby Rayburn and he wants him to have his number back. What I just never got was like, he's like booing Primo at the game to be like, play Bobby. And it's like, there's a lineup card. You'll get it. Uh, you'll, you can see when he's coming up. It's a very, yeah. baseball is a very orderly game. Why does he, he's a huge Giants fan. Why does he hate Primo? Shouldn't he love Primo? Like that's like a, a solid, like he's a, like a, like a player for the Giants. He mentions towards kind of like the beginning of the movie in that original broadcast with Jewel that he remembers watching Bobby, I think even as a college player, like he, I think Bobby in terms of that is like somebody he really latched onto at a very early age mm. in his career. Um, and so I think because of that, his, his initial obsession, because I think when you go to it, I think we, from our perspective, watching the movie, it seems like it starts when he's talking to him on the radio, but mm-hmm. when you hit that final scene where they're in like spoiler alerts where they're in like the little league stadium where all of like Gil's stuff is there's tons of papers on the wall that are about um bobby even as he's signing and like leading up to that time so it's pretty clear i think that the obsession with that person began even before he joined the giants and then just got like a deeper kind of fixation when he got the opportunity to talk to him and see him play. And so I think his initial obsession with Bobby really overtook any feelings of, of warmth he had towards Primo because of his affiliation with the Giants. If we're going to get psychological about it, um, is how I interpreted that. Um, that was very but yeah, good. Ah. He was talking to him about like his records. Hey, do you remember that like grand slam you hit back with so and so? And and like even you could see that Rayburn was just like, I don't remember that. Like <laughs> was how many years ago? Like, whatever, dude. Um, but yeah, so like the 11 thing is obviously I I interpreted the 11 thing, and maybe I was just looking at like pictures and stuff as 11, I think was a, a big thing with Bobby's dad. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there was like pictures of him and his dad together, and I think that that was where the 11 came in. Um and they may have even explained it as to why it was so important, but like, it was definitely like deep rooted. It wasn't just, Hey, that was my number with the Braves. So there was something way more to it than that. Um, 
And the one thing we kind of missed talking about before all that was that like the, the pendant that he has, there's a scene in the opening day where he and Primo collide in the outfield and it's pretty ugly and they both get pretty badly hurt and he loses the pendant. And that's really the start of like this downward spiral of him really like digging into the yips, like it's bad. Mm-hmm. And, um, and everybody kind of turns on Bobby in the fandom at that point. And that's when Gil really like feels this personal crusader need to like save Bobby, which I think is in general speaking terms, I listen to enough true crime podcasts that I think like that was a turning point for him where he felt like he could be the one and he was the only one who understood and like the only one who could like defend him. Um, And I think that that was where we saw him because it coincided so perfectly with him losing access to his kid in an absolutely appalling and like highly tense scene at a little league game that was oh, super upsetting. Yeah. Like, I legitimately thought he was going to kill that ump. This starts like this has been going on for several minutes now. And the in the mom, I think her name was, I don't know. Anyways, the mom was like not noticing and then doesn't notice until yeah. he gets all the way out on the field. He's already threatened to hit Tim in the head with the bat. Like, Man, I don't she's know. I don't like, like his mom either. Yeah, I mean, I think from our perspective, we have the only fairness we can offer is that she's clearly like been pushed to the edge by this guy. And I think like just at the absolute end of her tether when it comes to Gil. And I, I think that anybody who comes from a family of divorce has seen one of their parents at some point get to that point with the other one. Um, but not to the extent, obviously, that I think Gil really pushes. Like, he does threaten Tim with a bat. And at one point, it seems like they're just all going to come to blows over the fact that, like, Gil just wants, like, the coach to throw easy lobs to the kids. And it's just absolutely insane this scene like the entire time you're like somebody's going to get hit in the face with that bat like you're just waiting for it to happen because it it at that point has so already been established that gill is capable of that level of like unsettling like and that's before he even like stabs his boss's car and like all of that but like there's tons of inciting incidents that happen all at once for bob bob no Gil. Who's Bob? Gil. Robert De Niro. Bob Bobby anyway. De Niro. Yeah. Bobby De Niro. Bobbert. Um, anyway, so yeah, because he loses his job, he loses his kid. He, you know, the Giants kind of suck. So like it's a it's a bad because usually you just need one inciting incident for somebody to go and and lose it. And he has like at least two that happen simultaneously. Um, so it gets ugly real fast. Yeah. And the and the crowd. I mean, my goodness, those Candlestick Park fans are brutal with their signs. They are, are signs that big even allowed a They hate Bobby Rayburn. They're talking about him being $40 million man. And then, so there's a, so Bobby and Primo come to blows in, I had to note it because it's the weirdest bar. It's like this dive bar that it's also just bar. happens to have one stripper pole and one dancer, which I was like, is this a strip club or is this just like a dive bar that also happens to have a it's a very strange setup but uh the the players are there the giants are there and uh and and so like gills like you know tries to go into the restroom to talk to bobby but then bobby and primo are are like debating and like kind of coming to blows a little bit right and that kind of gets again like to your point where it's like this is Gil's opportunity to 
protect and save and do something for Bobby. And uh, so he goes to a spa and to confront Primo into demanding that he give up the number 11 to Bobby. And uh, it's again, like every scene with Gil in it, it's just disturbing and the tension is really, really high. So kind of effective, um, but I don't, it's very unsettling. I did not like it. That particular scene was done in a really unusual way too, right? Like goes in, he's got some sort of document in an envelope and he's trying to convince Primo to give up the number. And then Primo's like, no, no, that's my number. He's got some like brand on his shoulder that he has like he's number 11 i'm like man god that guy's dedicated let him have the number um but the thing about that scene that's really weird is the way it's filmed because it it initially looks like they kind of tussle and or like they just have a confrontation and that gill leaves and then it comes back in like spurts of clips um that they that was not the case (laughs) and they fought and um a pretty gnarly knife wound to the inner thigh for primo was what did him in because you got a pretty important artery hanging out in there yeah um artery thank you the knife uh i thought it's a really um i felt like kind of a realistic scene in terms of how that would go yeah and also like benicio del toro a fantastic death scene because he is like fighting him and then he like kind of just slowly loses energy and yeah. then it's shown Fades. and yeah it's just like he is just like slowly draining and then it's yeah. shown that like oh he got stabbed in the thigh which is one of the biggest arteries and so he's like he's he's gonna die he's like dying fast yeah. like it's yeah even if that brutal. even if he'd gotten out the door to like the pool area help it's, would not have made it on time yeah he's done and so then he pulls it out and there's blood spurts and he he dies right there and uh and then it's and like you said it's shot where gill is leaving he's all like sweaty from the sauna in this suit and he's just like leaving and then it's shown that he's like dead and um brutal so like we now have graduated to murder right and uh, and then obviously comes the part where Bobby starts having success. He does not take Primo's number, obviously, because- I had a moment, I'm not gonna lie. There was a <sighs> moment when he was walking into the clubhouse after Primo's death. And I'm like, if these mother give that man the number 11 after the guy wearing it was murdered, like, I'm sorry, never in 10 million years in Major League Baseball would that happen. Like, this, this film never. has a lot of things, and we're going to talk about it when we get to the baseball part, that, like, Tony Scott has just the vaguest understanding of what baseball is. So I was very worried, but yeah. instead they do the the black patch. patch. Yeah. yeah, and and, and uh, now we're all number, now we're all wearing it. The yeah. whole team is kind of like... I think there's, I don't know that anybody believed that Bobby did it. No. no but like no, no. there was definitely some genuine animosity towards him from the rest of the team. What's what's fascinating is the fans seem to like imply it in signs, which is again, absurdly crazy. These yeah. fans are unhinged at Candlestick at that place. I've never, I've been to AT&T Park or Pac-Bell Park yeah. a couple of times. And, is that what uh, it's called now? 
it's AT&T Park now, but it was Pac-Bell no. Park a while back. It was AT&T it, and now or- it's Oracle. Oracle. Oracle? Okay. Oracle. Oh my God, that place has had so many names. Beautiful yeah. park, one of the best, crown jewel of the of, of Major League ballparks. Um, the fans are fairly lovely. They have never seen a sign that accused any of their players of uh, second degree or, or greater murder. So um, great job. They were not uh, ever like, you know, accused Unfair of Unfair depiction of Giants fans. Giants fans make delightful signs. Do you, anybody else remember Hunter Pence signs? Mm. oh my god that was the, the greatest i loved that period of time with hunter pence signs oh bless. the other thing i want to mention because it's used a ton in this movie and it's 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 nine inch nails's song closer which tony really was like kept like and, and closer is a fantastic song it's one of the most dis- like it's a very disturbing like driving song trent Reznor is a genius uh, but it's that song is like building while the primo murder scene is happening and pretty good combination of visuals to audio to just make you deeply affected and disturbed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, like I made a strong note that like, cause Hans Zimmer did the score for this movie. He, he did! This and... film is so packed with talent. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And the score does a ton of heavy lifting here. Like the score really like amps up the tension even before the like tonal nine inch nails it it comes in like it kind of blends zimmer and trent reznor which makes me think that this is where trent reznor like wait i could probably score a movie um and then we'll thank (laughs) him scoring a movie is oh yeah when when he collects his oscar for the social network um but i i think that yeah like there's a lot of like those gritty nine inch nails beats though i'm sorry the best use of closer in a film is magic mike xxl and i will hear no arguments to the contrary um not yeah i I don't disagree don't disagree it works really well here obviously it's pretty disturbing Um, in seven as well it's i don't know if i i don't know if you can use it poorly i challenge somebody um, no don't do that there's i'm I'm sure zach snyder is already making notes um (laughs) it's when somebody's getting closer physically to somebody else i'm sure so on the nose it'll it'll just be the only song in the trailer for his next movie and then we'll be like yeah anyway um yeah the score does a ton of heavy lifting here you're right the use of nine inch nails is um phenomenal in that blend that it does with zimmer's music um to really just kind of make you feel sick to your stomach um it's, I'm sure you could write an entire essay on the music of this movie because it's so specific. Like it's, I don't know, it's that weird blend of, of Zimmer and Reznor and the Rolling Stones. So it's a decidedly unique. Very, very yes, very, um, yeah. It's, it, and it's interesting because you don't usually see films like repeat the same song multiple times. And this one repeats some of the songs and also some of the same band song. It's a, it's a very strange mix. It's a musically, I don't know if it works or not, but some things like the Primo Death uh, works really well. So, um, and you know, Hans Zimmer is like really good. Like I, I, it's a, this is a very strange film because the sum of its parts are not the whole is not as good as the sum of its parts because each well, in like every actor, we also have John Leguizamo as, yeah. as um, Bobby Rayburn's agent. Who's great. He's like kind of slimy and he's like, kind, like kind of like a, a shit heel, but like, he's very much like an agent. Um, like we already talked about Benicio del Toro, Ellen Barkin, 
we should talk about Wesley Snipes because this is, again, the second baseball movie he's done. Um, Willie Mays Hayes as well uh, right. uh, in Major League, which is a much different tone uh, than this film, um, but um, also playing a center fielder. Uh, yeah, but like Wesley Snipes looks the part. I don't think his batting style and stance are the best, but I can buy him as like a high-level athlete. He was really good in this. Like, not talking necessarily about how he he looked as a baseball player, but like acting chops wise, like I never would have pulled out and been like, hey, yeah, Wesley Snipes in a serious dramatic role. Um, to me, he's always Blade. Like, I just can't <laughs> unsee him in like Blade Trinity. Um, and I, I, that's my own thing, I'm sure. But like in this, like it was a really compelling really subtle like it, the way he played it especially in the scene later um towards like the third act of the movie there's a scene where um bobby's son has a near drowning incident mm-hmm. um and gill just happens to be stalking the family nearby and jumps into the water and saves him gets an invite into the house and like they're kind of playing it off each other and there's just like this subtlety to Snipes' performance where he's like trying to be the cool athlete and not act weirded out by Gil and like just, you know, letting everything, oh yeah, it looks good on you, man. Or like, hey, yeah, cool. You can keep my jersey, you effing psycho. Like he's just like, there's a, a real subtlety to that performance and like the scenes when he's trying to hit the home run in that final game where it's like literally his son's life is on the line and like, that you can feel I think so well the frustration of like the rain delay and the intentional walk like when he charges out to the mound after the first rain delay ends and he like goes up to the pitcher I'm just like without being able to tell him why just like you can tell like it's just thick and it's it's um yeah he his performance here is great so I, I totally agree. I, so we have to set the stage, right? So this is after uh, Bobby or after Gil kills Primo, Bobby starts to hit well again. But when asked about why, he does not say that it's because Primo died. Primo died, obviously. But Gil, being a uh, kind, of, a disturbed stalker, is interpreting that as like a direct affront. He did something for him, and he's not being thanked. So he stalks him out to the beach. Uh, his son uh, wanders too far out into the water and almost drowns. Gil does point out say, that there's a there's a dog involved in this. There's also a I dog involved. Stopped the movie to go to doesthedogdie.com um, because I need to, uh, to be for anybody listening who is immediately never going to watch a movie if the dog dies. It is never explicitly um, determined whether or not the dog dies or doesn't die in that drowning near drowning sequence, but he does get included in a kidnapping and then is never seen again by the end of the movie. Um, oh, that's so, good I didn't even think about that. I just assumed it was fine. I said, no, he escapes. He escapes. Well, no, because the, the kid, kid goes doesn't. over the fence and the, the dog is still on the other side with his like little league ball buddy who gets a bat to the head. Oh no. Did the I, dog oh, I never gets out. The dog, we never see the dog die. So maybe the dog they go back and find Gil. the dog. Let's just be honest. The dog is I gonna choose outsmart Gil. to believe that the Rottweiler Bradley um, does Horrible survive the movie. Acting. He just wants to go surfing and hang out with his buddy. Yeah. Um, so the dog does not officially die and I choose to believe the dog survives this film. Yeah, That's I never I saw it. it. It's not canon. So I, yeah, he's fine. 
Um, so yeah, so the so Gil runs out. Um, Wesley Snipes's body double also runs out. His <laughs> stunt man. It's the most like okay. So Brett also mentioned this in, in our group chat when we were watching it. We were like, well, that's not Wesley Snipes at all. Like Wesley Snipes is a very famous actor, very iconic face. Like I know what his face looks like. That is a completely different person, and it's like a close up almost. Like it is the most. It's not hidden. Like that is a stunt man. Definitely not Wesley Snipes. It looked like it looked so different that I'm like, oh, I'm sure it has to be him. Like, there's no way they would just show so clearly that it's not him. I must be looking at this upside down. Like, they just they have another shot, and so they have this. So yeah, so then so so um, Bobby invites Gil, who's at this point he doesn't know who he is, and Gil calls himself by a different name because um, because Bobby has is aware of a of a person who has called in, so he probably would have picked it up. And he invites him in, get a change of clothes and, and you know, share a beer and uh, and things spiral from there and to the point where, and like Ashley said, like fantastic act, like Wesley Snipes doesn't get to do a lot of big stuff until the end. Like he has to be pretty reserved because Robert De Niro is taking up all the crazy in the film. So you, you have to have a character that's not as big. So it is a more reserved role from Wesley Snipes who crushes it. He's fantastic. It is long overdue. Wesley Snipes did the time for the crimes. We need him back. Let's get him to some starring roles, Hollywood. Uh, but he does a great job of just like kind of trying to like extricate himself from like, oh, this situation has turned bad. This is very dangerous, but I'm not going to like let on yet. And I'm just going to be not like, gonna hey, run. <laughs> yeah. Hey. I'm going to, you know, it's going to be the night. Let me call you a cab. We're going to go. Then it turns out his car is missing. His son's missing. His dog's missing. Uh, Gil has kidnapped both his son and his dog and are just off. And now the film is like into the third act and off the rails. So yeah, I think before we get into the off the rails part, we should maybe take a quick break. Uh, and then dive right into the insanity when we come back because uh, I think it deserves its own focus because oh, oh wow one of the craziest thirds that third acts we've we've done yeah, by it's far. like it's wild uh, airbud three so we we talked a little bit about what led up to insanity and uh, now let's talk a little bit more about the third act of this movie which feels like somebody injected some sort of stimulant into the first two thirds of this movie. Somebody went and to Balco down the street and San from San Francisco and yeah. somebody and, and Tony Scott was like, oh, 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 I served you some tension in the first part of this movie. Now friends is time to reap what we sowed. Uh, and it gets a uh, pretty nutty. So like we just talked about uh, De Niro has kidnapped uh, Bobby Rayburn's son and dog. Uh, which obviously immediately makes me nervous because I do not care about kids, but I care an awful lot about dogs um, <laughs> and immediately get very worried for the safety of adorable Rawweilers. Um, and he's taken Bobby's gigantic Hummer and it's a, you know, attached car phone and is all, is off for a ride. Um, but I think before we get into this, there's, there's a running plot that kind of gets carried through the first part of this movie that I think just has to get mentioned subtly mm. is that is that he, we've talked about Robert De Niro's talked about baseball in terms of having been a player. He talks about how he played once and, you know, he, he learned the game and he could have been great and he had a great pitch. And like, those are the things that led up. And he talked about, was it, was it chubby or like somebody 
what was the guy's name? Coop. 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 So he talked about Coop, his his catcher, who was the greatest player he'd ever known and like had the greatest wisdom he'd ever heard. And I think if for anybody with even the slightest sense of like, I can handle a story and I can pick up context clues and I can build this out of my mind. You kind of visualize two guys that maybe went into the high majors together, not majors, high minors, mm-hmm. like maybe double mm-hmm. A and like they capped out there. Guys that were, you know, as we've talked about in like summer catch and the like, where, you know, sharing, you know, the, the cheapest public sandwich together um, in their apartment with nothing but blow up mattresses on the floor because that's all they could afford. Like that's where you forge those really tight bonds like that, I think. What a great origin story that would have been for like both of their characters. And but instead <laughs> guys, one day I'm gonna write the base the baseball movie of our dreams and we'll all be grateful for it. But we got this. Uh, we have both shows and movies that we need to write. We're we're gonna um, do great things one day. Um so he's talked about Coop a ton. He talks about Coop so much his son knows Coop's greatest hits in terms of quotes. Um he just like Coop is this guy who is kind of like built up is this like mythic figure. And in the third act, after he's kidnapped the kid and he's kidnapped the dog, he shows up at like this warehouse slash like, you know, yard, like industrial yard. It's like a refinery or something. Yeah. And, and like runs into this grizzled old dude. And it's like, like a night watchman. He's yeah. like a night security guard for this like, yeah, factory and, or something. And it's Coop. And like, and I'm like, okay, all right. You know, you know, you, you went through the trenches together. You've got like that history. I get it. Okay. And oh my God, I, this, this plot point just absolutely kills me. This is built up. Like it's throughout. And I think this is the only part of this movie that actually kind of shocked me. It is, was a great payoff. It was a great like payoff, I think. So there's a scene as they're kind of waiting, like, like he set the stage, he's told Bobby what's happening. He's got the kid. The kid is not going to be returned until Bobby hits a home run for him. So now Gil is kind of biding his time and he decides that he's going to teach the kid how to bat. So he's taken some photos of the two of them together with knives. Again, foreshadowing that never yields anything. And now they're playing a game together and Coop is kind of behind the kid Mm -hmm. and like subtly coaxing Gil into throwing some wild pitches um until the point where he throws the ball back to gill and overthrows it intentionally and then tries to help the kid escape mm-hmm. and gets the kid over a fence and then bobby gill yeah gill loses his mind about this and turns on coop and he's like you know we were together we were teammates we were so and so after like walloping him one in the head with a baseball bat and coop like i swear to this is the only part of this movie that like legit blew me away coop is like it was little league little league yeah yeah it's a it's a fantastic payoff to the fact that like this guy is so deranged that like this moment in little league was basically the only good moment in this guy's life like it's been directly downhill from there and it's like devastating uh and then coop like presumably dies because he gets beaten to death by this lunatic. He wails on him a couple more times with the wooden <sighs> yeah, it's, that. So um... it's unbelievable. So I thought a fantastic job by the actor that played Coop, just like the whole time. Cause it's like, imagine from that character's perspective, right? This guy who you haven't seen in like 40 decades. years. Yeah. 40 years conservatively just shows up out of nowhere 
with a small black child. So you're like, all right, what's something's this up? Is, this is perfectly normal and not at all insane. And, uh, but like, again, trying to play it, trying to like bide time. And he, he does a heroic act. He gets killed. Um, Coop, fantastic. Great payoff for this character. He says he's everything that Bobby said he was, just not quite in the way that we were led to believe. Um, so at this point, right, we, uh, it's getting really deranged. So we don't know where the kid is. We don't know where Gil is. We know well, Gil, that basically- We should mention that Gil recaptures the kid. Yes. Like the, Bobby, the, the, the coop got him free, but he's stopped by a train and Gil recollects him. And this is also the point where we lose any sense of where the dog has gone. Um, yeah, so we, we get to the, 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 the game and all, so Gil is basically said, like, I, you know, he's implied that he's going to kill his son if Bobby doesn't hit a home run for Gil. For right? specifically so for game. Gil, like points to the, like the, the Jumbotron and says, this is for my number one fan, biggest Giants fan in the world, Gil. Um, yeah. And so he can't tell the pitcher. So he's like, no, like soft, you know, you can't like groove a pitch or something like that. And you can't tell anybody. So at the stadium, you got like the FBI is there and the police. They're like kind of on the lookout for him. And Ellen Barkin is trying to help them out. And uh, well, Ellen Barkin is the one who figures out that it's Gil because nobody has actually made those connections yet. Like Bobby has met him face to face, but only knows him as Curly and has only heard Gil as Gil over the Mm -hmm. phone. And so Ellen Barkin, who has had regular contact with Gil on her radio show, is, is a, a bloody detective and hears his watch, his giant's watch go That's off right. That's and right. makes the connection right away because she must kind of, I feel like if you have like, you know, the crazies that call your show all the time, you kind of like, they ring a bell immediately. Um, so she must have kind of had Gil on her radar as a bit of a weirdo from the get go um but like that connection was right there she heard that watch and she's just like is this my friend gill like so it was um pretty interesting i mean yeah. i mean they might have known before it's hard to say but like i feel like that was the moment where the the two kind of parts of the story met well and i i actually we we forgot this and it does need to be mentioned it's set up to know that gill cuz like from this perspective right we now have gill kidnapped a kid but will we and and he told uh, Bobby that he killed Primo, but to prove that he killed Primo, he left him a, a a surprise in his freezer, which was Primo's skin from his arm from his brand of the number eleven, cut off his body and put into a Ziploc bag in his freezer. Like that is set. Like it's like we are all the way redlining on the RPMs at this point. I have a a question about that moment. Only in that, so getting into Bobby's house, he had to like dive into the water, save the kid, do all that. Was he carrying the ear in a Ziploc bag that He was carrying time? the skin arm the entire time, yes. Oh, sorry, not an ear, yes, the, the yes. shoulder skin. It was just skin. the arm, it was the arm, yeah. yeah. He's not a psychopath, um, Ashley, Jesus. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry. He just skinned I mean, a person, but not an ear. 
Yeah, he's Buffalo Bill. He's not the guy from Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. There's levels of that, I guess. So, okay. So we have we have Bobby Rayburn at the game trying to hit a home run for his son, the FBI, and Jewel trying to track down, um, doing the job of the FBI for them. And, uh, and we don't know where the kid is, where the, we don't know where the dog is, and we don't know where Gil is. So really impressive too when you think about the jewel has only ever heard Gil's voice. So I don't know how much she's going to help in this particular situation since the only person who's ever seen Gil's face is the guy who is on the baseball diamond trying to hit a home run. But um so it goes. And so um yeah, that this game maybe this like this is sort of where we should blend the baseball part to the movie part. Right. Because it's basically baseball at this point but also is it baseball or is it what tony scott's fever dream of what baseball is because what a crazy mess cinematically he was like you know what would be really cool rain you know what's not cool a little bit of rain you know what's very cool all the rain in all the world all the rain that has ever fallen in california ever yeah. Pouring at once. There's like lakes developing on the infield. <laughs> There's so much rain and they're just like, play on, play on. If Liam Hendricks was out there, he'd be like tossing balls. He'd be like, get another, just angrily, just throwing them away to get that. Liam Hendricks away. would have just told the umpires to stop the game. We've seen it. I'm sorry, but Liam Hendricks would have had none of it. Um, he does not mess with weather. He is better than weather. Um, but so the game is stopped. The game is, yes. is stopped mid at bat, right as they were trying to intentionally walk him. So two balls into the at bat, uh, as, just as Bobby's losing his mind, the game is put on a weather hold, um, which I love because you think he would be happy to have the intentional walk stopped partway through. Um, but no, he's furious. What's happening? And in fairness, it is what the top of the eighth it's at the, this it's point. Ba- it's basically it. Yeah, so he it's his last at-bat for sure. Uh, and it is absolutely at a point where the game could be called. So, he, you know, there is that risk if they think the weather is going to be bad that the umps could just say, well, we're going to call this one completely. And, you know, that's that. Um, but the most unrealistic part about this, and I'm sorry, like, yeah, it's raining. We've seen games stopped with that level of rain before. They pull the tarps. And then like five scant minutes later, the tarps are removed and I'm not a you know meteorologist, but I'm fairly certain that satellite weather existed in 1996 um, and probably could have suggested that just maybe waiting another 15 to 20 minutes before removing that tarp would have stopped them from having to immediately go back to an at-bat in the pouring rain. It's maybe? just, again, we cannot stress, this is like, a fire hose is set up at the top of the stadium, just like blasting down. It's unbelievable torrents. Um, so Bobby, after the rain delay, and now still in the pouring rain, does get a pitch to hit, and he drives one into the gap, and he is racing around. And obviously, since it's pouring rain, it's a very sloppy field. And so he is trying for an inside the park home run. And to be fair, 
he does make it. He he is clearly safe. Like Super this is safe. this is pre replay review. Yeah. Um, and we know how bad replay review is, but I think even they would have been able to see that yeah. he was safe. But oh, there's a twist. No, no. The umpire no. calls him out. But who's that umpire? Oh, it's Gil. It's Gil. The, Gil is the umpire. To be fair, they do foreshadow that. There is a scene where Gil's kind of walking around the inside and you see the guy, everyone's kind of pouring out off the fields and he's walking by a place where one of the umpires is clearly coming off the field. I question, even in unhinged Gil world, that he could have been able to grab that umpire and take his uniform with thousands of people around right. them. That's a certainly presumably like murdering yes, him. Yeah. He definitely murders him. Like that, um, we don't know what happens to the dog. I believe he the dog lives. The dog survived. That umpire is dead. That umpire is straight died. dead. Like, um, he is definitely dead. Lots the other people. person who is dead is the guy who looks like Todd Jones. Um, I don't know if John Crock, the, the catcher, or what role he was playing. Philadelphia Phillies legend John Crock, an ESPN analyst. He hella died. Um, yes, he gets. <laughs> So at at the point where at the point where Bobby finds out that the umpire is the psychopath who has kidnapped his son and is threatening to murder him, he like starts at like attacking him. Well, he hits him with a bat, and I just I'm, I want to imagine the scene like as baseball fans. Please, can we just without the context clues of it? Not knowing what's going on, can you imagine watching a game where, like, just yesterday, Max Scherzer got in the face of some umpires? Yeah. But can you imagine if that ended with like a player grabbing a bat and like smashing the like? I'm not. This isn't funny, and it wouldn't be funny in real life. No. But you, you would just be stunned. Like, what is happening? What is going on? Well, because it's after a bad call, so you're yeah. like, oh, Bobby's lost it and that's the thing too because he can't say what this is so like, yeah. there's like the stadium police are all show up and draw their guns all the all the other team cle- they thought it was a bench clearing yeah so like oh the yeah bench it was definitely clear. it looked like donny brooks man it was nonsense so it's definitely like the situation where like if you are your the giants you're like what the heck is how what oh no bobby's like we're gonna get him away from there and yeah. so it offers it allows gil the chance to recover grab his knife and- gut John Crook, ESPN and Philadelphia Phillies legend John Crook. I mean, he impaled Bobby. Like it was that right knife through. was through Bobby's right shoulder. Through yeah. Like and um, then so he's and, all bloody. Yeah. And then uh, somehow Bobby Rayburn is able to convince the police to not shoot him. Yeah. Which it's like, why are you listening to Bobby Ray? Why are you listening to the San Francisco Giants player? Like, blow this guy away. He's got a knife. Like the you're same def- player who just hit this man with a bat. Maybe they're like, hey, he must have known something. Um, uh, but like, I think at this point, like the, the jig is up. Like he's yelling, where's my son? Where's my son? Like, yeah. you know, like there's there's not a lot of secret to it. Um, but the scene just goes, like it goes nutty. Like Bobby's like, I still haven't shown you my best pitch. And then like, not Bobby, sorry. I'm going to keep saying Bobby because it's Robert De Niro. It's Bobby um, De Niro, yeah. And so, yeah, Gil goes to the up to the pitcher's mound, stepping over John Crock's body. Who's laying in the no, mud? He's not being tended to medically. Like, no, he no, is just, it's like he's like whatever. He's dead. He is dead. Even after like, the initial screaming was done, like he's still just there. Nobody's like super, <laughs> super dead. Um, and so like Gil goes up and he's holding the knife 
like it's a ball and the guy the cops are like well we should probably shoot this man who is clearly about to throw a knife and like bobby's like no man no don't do it and then like gil winds up to throw the knife at bobby and naturally like the police everybody shoots him. yeah he's they... he was sunny corleone on the yes, pitcher's mound yeah. like just, just completely oh my god but yeah. i will i will say i almost hate that gil actually answers like before all of this goes down he as things are like unraveling and he goes well what can i say he's at the big ballpark in the sky and like it feels like he's saying he already killed them so like you know whatever let's mm-hmm. let's roll but like it's the literal answer yeah it's like, they named they definitely named that ballpark ballpark in the sky or stadium in the yeah. sky whatever it was called so for that oh, line yeah. like they wrote that line 100 for sure because then they like find the guy's kid and like so they're talking to gill's poor kid who is gonna have ptsd for the rest of his life uh, and probably never be able to pick up a knife again and or will become a serial killer himself. I can't call it. Um, and they're like, Stay well, tuned wait, for the fan any, too. any special places that you guys went together? And he's they, he like gives up the ballpark. So um, yeah, man. Uh, uh, okay, so here, okay. I, it's not a good movie. Like- no. It's the third act is absolutely unhinged. Any sense of realism that was built into the tension. I mean, really, you've got a a somewhat realistic stalker thriller up until the point, I think, where Gil kills Primo. And I think you could almost get away with it if that was the climax of the movie. Like if, you know, if he just kind of gets unhinged, continues to follow Bobby, this thing slowly unravel from there and then i don't know maybe gil kills himself or something it, you know like it's that part of it felt feasible and tense and like a good and i i wouldn't even say it was good because there was points like i'm just like i hate everybody in this movie every single person in this movie is terrible i don't like any of them uh, a few of them redeem themselves later but like for the most part it's not a lot of likable characters and because of that i don't think you ever feel compassion towards gill i don't think you're supposed to like he is an outright bad guy no um, no but it, it so i i don't know that there is really a good movie in here this is a bad movie that is constructed of a lot of good pieces like the individual parts of this movie like the performances the music like those things are good but the achieved result at the end is not something i would ever say hey you know what you should watch this weekend 1996 is the fan starring wesley snipes and robert i will never watch this movie again i will never watch this movie again but i i did like i this is one of the more this is a weird way to say this but this is one of the more enjoyable watches we've had for this show is because I'm like, this uh, This did all the things it wanted to do. It told a story, it had characters, it ended this way. And I will say this about this. I, I, it's not a great movie. It's not even that good of a movie, but there's so many parts to like individually that I do think, I enjoyed watching it the first time through. We just went through, was it two years ago now? We went through the discourse about a film that got like Oscar nominated and lots of buzz that I, hated i actually i'm just gonna straight up say i hated it 
uh, and that movie was the was Joker. And this is a better version of that movie. Now, Joker is a worse version of the King of Comedy and Taxi Driver, but this is the better version of Joker. Oh, you're where, like, we're just only talking about Robert De Niro movies. <laughs> so they're all listen, Bobby movies. owns this. Bobby owns this. Like, uh, Bobby De Niro owns this role. And and that's the thing. Like, I, I feel like in Joker, the biggest problem with that film is that you are trying, they're trying to make that character, Joaquin Phoenix, who does a fantastic job in that, a sympathetic character. He's not. Yeah. He is a dangerous person that needs like mental help and the city does should have more money into mental health programs because this person is not fit for society and needs to be removed from society that's like gill right like the, i like that this character is not like a guy that you're like oh he's just down on his luck so one of the things about this film that i just i i wrote down because i was just like this is this this film that i think actually almost makes uh it's it's kind of very of this modern time of like the white rage like he he is such a like woe is me things happen to me and i'm angry about it but it's like no you did it all to yourself uh i'm like this is the better version of joker like what worked about joker where it was like this idea of like oh the film like the people that are unheard today the people that are striving blah 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 blah. it's like no this is this is the better version of that it's they're dangerous and we don't need to see their side. Their side is not great. And, but we do need to like get them help. So like the wife, his ex-wife should have called the police earlier and a restraining order and really kept upping it because this guy needed to have professional help. And that would have maybe saved a lot of things. And so did yeah. Joaquin Phoenix's character. In well, Joker. It's funny that you kind of talk about that because I'm listening to a podcast right now um called wicked words it's a it's a it's a series where they're interviewing people who have written true crime books and the authors are kind of talking about the experience of what goes into writing those books and i'm it's a psychologist who did a series of interviews with dennis Rader. the btk killer Mm -hmm. is the first episode and so she's talking about psychopathy and how there's like programs now where if youth, like young men specifically, because young men manifest a a psychopathy differently than women do is something we're learning slowly. Um, And the signs are much more uh, obvious. They're much more known in young men. And so there's these programs that now, if you can see this as young as like the age of three, that you can like deprogram it kind of, and you can deescalate and you can give them these coping mechanisms that mean they're unlikely to go into, you know, a Joker mode or a Gill mode later on down the line. And it's really interesting that you say the woe is me, the world is against me kind of thing, because the psychologist was talking about this as being something that she has seen like clockwork in every single psychopath she's ever dealt with. That it's like they build these situations for themselves and are like the masters of their own terrible situations, but then they whine about it. And that's what she said. She's like, it's not technically on the list of like 20, the 20 point checklist of what makes a psychopath. Um, But she's like, every single one I've ever met has that same mentality. It's like this whiny, woe is me thing. And that's exactly what Gil presents in this, exactly what the Joaquin character in, in Joker does. It's just like, and they just want, people to feel bad for the situation that they have created for themselves. 
and it's uh sorry just fascinating like real world psychology thing yeah that's that's yeah that's totally true um it's i just i i, mo I put this note down Gil definitely stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Like he he went to the Capitol, like he's dead, but like if he had lived about 20 more years, he would have been at the Capitol on January 6th. Oh no. Oh, Darby. Oh, uh, he's right. No. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. Oh, sorry. I had to, I have to. We'll get into what I love and hate because there's two quotes in here I want to talk about. I did mention that there was too much, too, too nine inch nails, too much nine inch nails. And then I said, guys, what happened to the dog is my final note uh, for the entire movie. Because, but that's, uh, we've clearly discussed that that's all I care about. Um, we'll take another quick break and then we'll talk a little bit more about the baseball in this movie, I think. Uh, and then kind of wrap up with some of our final thoughts on the film. Hey guys, so before we go to break, we've got some really cool bonus audio for you. So after we recorded this on the night of the Home Run Derby, SB Nation hosted a Spotify green room in which the special celebrity guest was none other than John Cruck, who we've talked about as having been featured in this movie. And we kind of wax poetic about how uh, crazy hilarious his death scene was in the big rain melee in the end. Uh, but Ashley McLennan, who is obviously our great host, got a chance to be involved in this Spotify Green Room live event and got to ask John Cruck about his involvement in the movie. So before we go to break, here's Ashley talking to John Cruck about the fan. Awesome, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we let you go, let everybody know where they can find your podcast and where they can find you on social media. Yeah, you bet. Um, I run a podcast called Who's on Worst, where we look at the worst baseball movies and kind of go through them. And John, I'm so sorry to do this. We just did the fan last week. <laughs> and I gotta say, we had quite the time of it in your death scene at the end. We absolutely loved that moment. Um, so thank you. <laughs> but, hey, that was rough. <laughs> yeah, we have lots of questions about why it didn't get played so in that degree. Did you see how hard they had it raining when they killed me? Yes. Like I, Very I unrealistic. So, so we thought the movie was going to come to an end because as I was running out for like the 10th time, like I had a full wetsuit on underneath my baseball uniform. So, like, I was very restricted uh, flexibility-wise. And so I had to run and jump over someone and then grab Robert De Niro. Well, the one time, like the tenth time I did it, I ran out, tried to jump over the guy, and he raised up, so he kind of clipped me a little bit, and I wiped him out and took out some lights and other stuff. And uh, uh, one of the, the assistant producer thought that uh, that might be the end of the movie because – it wasn't in his contract for me to take him out. <laughs> so uh, we were worried about that part, but he 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 was good. He stayed in there and hung in, and we finished it. But I had to lay in that stuff, that pond, uh, for probably like two or three minutes every time we did that scene. So we had to do it like 10 or 15 times. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I a man of many talents. In an infield. 
<laughs> a very wet looking scene for sure um so yeah you can find the, the podcast on the d-rays bay podcast network so just search d-rays bay on any podcast service we're there and i'm at 90 feet from home on twitter awesome thank you again ashley so we've talked a little bit about the the big kind of baseball brawl towards the end of this where Obviously, Bobby's trying to hit his magical home run and, you know, win one for Gil just so he can have a son back. Um, let's talk a little more about baseball in general in this movie. Um, we don't tend to see tons of stuff of on the field. There's not really much for us to go on. Like Darby said earlier, you kind of get to see Bobby at bat a lot and he's pretty standard looking batting stance and you know, nothing too exciting there. There's the, I think the really, the only thing that feels real was that outfield collision between Bobby and Primo. We've absolutely seen that, Um, but we've seen it a lot in baseball movies, especially another one that we'll talk about in our next episode. Um, But outfield collisions seem to be kind of like the de rigueur of um, cinematic baseball. Um, And I'm kind of getting sick of seeing them. I'm not going to lie. Nothing builds tension more than... Lack of communication amongst outfielders. They do not happen that often. They happen, but they don't happen quite as often as I think baseball films would like us to believe. Um, I think the thing I did like about that is that they really did emphasize that, you know, two dudes running full tilt towards each other on a baseball diamond hitting each other uh, will genuinely hurt you. Yeah, no, it's like, it's, there's a good weight. I mean, I think a lot of times with baseball movies, it's easy to almost like underplay the physicality of the sport right but like that that definitely like kind of connected there i think overall the baseball in this movie is pretty mediocre you know like gill doesn't know the rules of baseball like a lot of times it's just like shocked that somebody's up and it's just like again it's a batting order you it's the most obvious like you know exactly who's coming up i know who's coming up after him i know like you can kind of like really plan that out it's really uh, only surprising when a pinch hit occurs, Gil. Like, it's not... Right. Yeah. He has, like, a line where he's like, sit down and let Bobby bat. And it's like, that's not how any of this works. Bobby is two batters ahead. Like, oh, my God. His, his so, moment will come, Gil. We all want Wander to bat every time. It's not... I, right. Right. Um, so, okay. The baseball is... Eh. Uh, I think they do a solid job with kind of like the yips where, where a lot of things can, can affect mental part of the game. Uh, I thought what one of the elements of the sports part that I thought this movie did a pretty good job of, it was like kind of capturing like sports radio, sports yeah. talk radio. And, uh, and like Jewel is a fairly good representation of what yeah. sports talk radio is. It's hot takes. Uh, oftentimes like some cruel shots at players um, trying to like bring up his divorce uh, to the play. Like that's the kind of, that's the kind of crap that you do see from like, you know, a lot of schlocky media outlets. Her last name in this movie is Stern, by the way. So, I mean, it does kind of make sense that she would be a little bit like shock jockey. Um, I I like though that they took sports talk radio, which is, Historically, I'm, I'm sure even more so in 1996, uh, a very bro industry. And so it was kind of cool to see a spin on what a sports talk radio show was. It, st- I say historically, but still is, I think, a lot today. So I, I enjoyed that, uh, even though I just hate this movie so much. 
<laughs> it's it's not a, it, it, the movie isn't good, but it's it's more so like I don't like any I didn't like Joker, I, anything where I I don't like any movie that has any hint of like scariness or horror or oh, no. thriller. And so yeah, this one this one was tough, but I made it through. Didn't jump out of my chair. There was no jump no. scares in this. Oh, it was actually Brett. it was very straightforward. For John all the, Crock, all the kind scares of... were straightforward, but. Yeah. But I, I have, yeah, I will. I will say the one line I really liked was when John, uh, Leguizamo's character, was trying to convince Bobby to take number thirty-three. He said, "And I quote: Jesus Christ was thirty-three when he died, and people are still talking about him." <laughs> uh, I like well-written line. That's well good. Written. I like that. I got. I got a couple of favorite lines. I think we, we we don't really have much more baseball to talk about because it's pretty minimal in this movie. Lots of slow jogs around the base, just like so you can see an actor's face. It's not a terribly exciting representation, um, but I have a couple lines that really uh, stuck out to me. At one point, uh, Leguizamo has another great line uh, where he decides that instead of like blacklisting Jules from talking to Bobby, she he's going to use her as a way to kind of like get his spin on a story out there and jewel says to him she's just like what i thought i was on your your like no interview list and leguizamo says schindler has a list not me um which uh wow wow guys uh and then my other favorite line in the entire movie it was a point where gill and bobby are having a chat about how fickle fans can be and uh bobby says fans are like women uh and then talks about how they, they only love you when you're you know they, he didn't say balling out of control but like you know they only love you when things are going well and i'm just like cool cool yeah that's uh completely eliminating the fact that half of baseball fans are women but that's cool bobby thank you so much uh super duper appreciated that line um <laughs> yeah i don't know i think in general like my feelings on this and i have no problem with thrillers or scary movies i, I watch horror movies for funsies um it does a good job with the tension and we've talked about it a lot i think there are some really solid individual elements of this movie um and i i'll say it again and i know darby and i have both said this quite a lot is that the, the individual performances in this movie are all super good like everybody's really bringing their A game to this movie. And it's really in, like a Snipes especially stood out for me. Like De Niro is playing De Niro going crazy. And that's something he's really good at, but it is absolutely a character we've seen him play before. Um, but I thought like Snipes really felt real in the role. And I thought that that was really well done. Um, would I recommend you go out and watch this movie? Absolutely not. Um, if it's playing on like HBO Max at two in the morning and you happen to not be able to sleep and you got nothing else going for you, yeah, it's better than watching season eight of Game of Thrones again. Absolutely, dive in. Um, but that's that's about so, it's not better than season eight of Game of Thrones. I, mean, I know we can hate on it, but I really at least season eight of game of thrones is pretty not, not great I, I won't watch that a second time either let me tell you it's like even the worst star wars is still star wars i would probably watch this again before i watched any of the first three episodes of star wars i didn't hate it as much as you guys did actually but i do I but but i do think i'm a i give it a oh man 
a lot of credit with because Tony Scott is like not my favorite director, but he's like he has he makes he will make a film like this film has clear flaws as do most of Tony Scott's films, but he has a style like he has a style he has a like a vision and sometimes that vision isn't good but like he lands a vision and i i appreciate to use like a baseball term like a nice big swing and that's every film that tony scott does is a is a pretty darn big swing and uh you know they they can't all be home runs sometimes it's like a, a foul ball right back kind of timed it up and uh that's what i thought the fan was which was just uh you know it had some moments uh it's it's i don't think i'd ever watch it again though it's uh it's a it's a very unsettling movie like it is it does do that well but it is not a fun watch at any point it's just a very unsettling movie and then there's a very and then the ending is pretty goofy so i will say like probably not the way, best way to end it with like kind of some hilarity john crook getting like gutted on the field <laughs> i'm i just kind of laughed cuz i'm like well, it's john crook that's not like I I can't see that as a character and like maybe other people can't but like I was like oh John at the time in 96 maybe because he wasn't like on like baseball tonight and like ESPN broadcast for like so much of my childhood so um the, you know the this is going to be the hardest question though which is our last question which is no no I have to talk about one thing first before we oh, go okay. to our hardest question uh the opening credits for this movie um are like 700 minutes long and it's just like old baseball footage, some of it on repeat. I was already mad at the editors of this movie because they're at least like the same scene of somebody throwing like an underhand pitch was used at least three times in these opening credits as Robert De Niro reads a very boring poem about baseball or something. I don't know, but like really I was either. super ready for that to be done and it kept going for like 10 straight minutes. Um, so yeah, didn't didn't love that. Um, so you're already bored going into the movie, but then just to foreshadow how serious it is, they zoom in way too close on a black and white newspaper photo and then invert the color. So you know that something serious is going to happen. And then they do the exact same thing at the end. Uh, anyway, super boring, but let's decide our most important question, Darby, go ahead. Who do we add to the Rays? From I'm gonna say, I'm, I'm gonna take first. Primo. Pre pre death primo is my take. Aging out center fielder moved to the corners, finish off his career, and then ultimately killed by a fan that wants him replaced. In other words, uh, Darby's thoughts on Kevin Kiermaier. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh no! Oh no! <laughs> no! <laughs> no! I don't know if we were monetized before this, but we definitely aren't now. Oh, no. Well, if, if, if I know anything about Kevin Kiermeyer, it's like, if he hears this, he'll block me on uh, on Twitter. So <laughs> you I probably did, you did. This time you burned it. But... This time you burned it. Oh, no. It's not just Darby, though. It's like half of, we can, we're, we can turn this into Raise Your Voice. It's, it's like half the Rays fandom that's just like, Completely out on Kiermaier now, and I and I was thinking I just, of him I when Primo was choose to just to really I I get really excited every time Randy Rosarena does something impressive, because I choose to believe it's him intentionally showing up Kiermaier now, like he made a great catch in that Franco first game, and it was just like oh yeah he did that on purpose, 
ran like all the way from almost center field right over to the edge of the like the state the infield grass and i'm like yeah he did that because he'd be like i can do it too kevin but like my mom like actively roots against him now after that play and i'm like mom like he's still on the team we still need him to i still want to see one game where he has to play the entire outfield by himself (laughs) he seems to think he can but oh, I, I would man. I would watch that. Just have like seven seven infield. The Rays still haven't done their two man outfield. I still want a KK and Brett Phillips two man outfield. <laughs> oh, I would watch that game so thoroughly. Oh, just, just like fun. for fun funsies. Um, I like I would like that game. Brett, who do you add to the uh, Rays? I'm adding John Cruck. But because if any if this, if this movie taught me anything, it's uh, or it led me to John Cruck's uh, baseball reference and fan graphs profile where I'm kind of coming to the conclusion that John Cruck is Yandy Diaz. I mean, oh. you look at his three-year peak from 92 through 94. He put up OBPs of 423, 430, and 395. And his home run to, uh, his home run peak in that, those years was 14. 17% walk rate to a 13.4% K rate in 1993. Uh, this is like Yandy Diaz. If he was a Hall of Famer. So we're saying when the fan 2.0 comes out, it will be Yandy's turn. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. To die horribly at the end oh, of the... Yeah. I'm sorry. This is terrible. But I, I guess I just never really understood, and I wasn't alive, uh, how <laughs> how good John Cruck was during his peak. So I'm taking John Cruck. Oh, can we never I... talk about how much younger Brett is than me ever again <laughs> on this podcast? <sighs> Oh, my parents I, had a no. when John Cruck was when, born. When were you born, Brad? 99. Okay. You know what? I'll take it because at least like Wander Franco was like born the year I graduated high school, which makes me feel very old. So at least you got, you're a couple years older than him. Oh, oh God. Oh, it hurts. And only oh, a little less rich okay. than, than Wander Franco. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Your baseball so ability bad. is also slightly oh, below. That's yet to be seen. Well. I haven't got called up yet. So. <laughs> that's right. It's oh. true. There's yeah. Rays are still keeping your you know service time clock nice and pristine. Keep it nice and pristine. Um, I I'm not afraid of adding a uh, a a um, expensive player who after this after all of this chaos, I'm sure the Giants might want to move on from and we'll eat a large portion of the salary to send him uh, out east. So bring me Bobby Rayburn, um, number 11, not like we can get him number 11. That's, that's no, that's no big problem. Uh, I think uh, Bobby Rayburn's like just sitting there right there for us. I'm, I'm ready. Yeah. Bring it on. Like that's it. It seems like a a nice, easy choice. I think uh, somebody who would you know, I think also, I don't know how good his defense was. He needs to communicate better, but the race have managed with center fielders that don't communicate. So I think you can make it work. Uh, I think the Rays can get the best out of, of uh, Bobby Rayburn. Rayburn feels like a Razy kind of choice. He feels like a, a, a you know, had we gotten Nelson Cruz two years ago kind of choice. Um, that, that that fits. That's a he vibe. Did, and number eleven is he open would, right now. Nobody has number eleven. It's perfect. Slot in real nice as a DH if his defense wasn't what you want it to be, too, right? Like, 
Well, not at a writing, you could boom like a platoon with like a Lau or, or Meadows. Like, you know, I, they can make it work. They need another right-handed bat. Um, so yeah, Bobby Rayburn. I'm into it. All right. Well, that I think brings us to the end of our discussion of Tony Scott's The Fan, uh, which we all categorically agree that you should only watch once if you watch it at all. And uh, well, real quick, real before we wrap this up, I just came up with this idea. So instead of as our friends at Take Me Into the Ball Game, they rate movies on a, the twenty to eighty scale. Oh, that's cute. We mentioned like a lot of like specifically Wesley Snipes and, and Robert De Niro, their performances, uh, with and some other good parts of this movie. So would we say this one is like at the Mendoza line, maybe? I think just above and thank you i did write an article about how we should no longer call it that it's above the bad bat line thank you i'm bad, still that line i'm still Respect getting to, to that uh, one. mr mendoza who was wrong whose name was wrongly uh, attached he smirched he smirched he is in the mexican baseball hall of fame thank you very much um yeah <laughs> and that's our show <laughs> I think above. I think ever so slightly above the uh, the bad bat line, as it were. Um, I can't. Even, I wrote it, and I can't even remember. I think it's baseball batting average detrimental to baseball activities in total. Um, is yeah, it's. I think that's what it stands for. Batting average detrimental to baseball activities in total uh, is what bad bat stands for. Um, <laughs> uh yeah i i don't know i think it's watchable like you're not going to sit there and feel like you've wasted your life for watching the movie i paid 3.99 to rent it on youtube because i paid one dollar less to get it in standard definition uh and missed absolutely nothing so just do a good sd rental and uh or get it for free i don't know did you guys stream it somewhere in the states for free i paid uh, mr bezos to watch it to, uh, to rent it fair play i did, I did as well uh, we just needed to get him a little bit more money. Yeah, I would not uh, not strongly recommend giving any money to anybody for this movie. Um, but like, I don't know, if you're at like a resort somewhere and you find the DVD in like the lending library of the main cabin, uh, give, give it a go. That's about the strongest enthusiasm I can muster for it. Uh, better than I can say for Summer Catch, Trouble with the Curve or uh, um, The Scout. So there we go. <laughs> so that will do it for us for another bad baseball movie. We have been Ashley Darby and Brett for Who's On Worst. And uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll get at you next time. Bye.